said to Yaakov, Arise up, go to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Yaakov said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then let us arise and go to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they had and the rings that were in their ears. Jacob hid them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. And as they journeyed, a terror from God fell upon the cities that were around them, so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. And Jacob came to Luz, that was Bethel, uh, that is Bethel, which is in the land of Canaan. And he and all the people who were with him, uh, and there he built an altar and called the place El Bethel, because there God had revealed himself uh, to him when he fled from his brother. And Deborah, Rafika's nurse, died, and she was buried under an oak below Bethel. And so he called his name Alun Bakut. God appeared to Jacob again, and when he came to Fadan Aram and blessed him, and God said to him, Your name is Jacob, no longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel, and God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and the kings shall come from your own body. The land I gave to Ibrahim and Ishaq I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. Then God went up to him, uh, went up from him in the place where he had spoken to him, and Jake uh, and Jacob set a pillar in the place where he had spoken with him, a pillar of stone. He poured out a drink of offering on it and poured oil on it. So Jacob called the name of the place where God had spoken to him, Bethel. Then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were then they journeyed from Bethel. When they were some distance from Ephrath, Rahil went into labor, and she had hard labor. And when her labor was at its hardest, the midwife said to her, Do not fear, for you have another son. And as her soul was departing, for she was dying, she called his name Ben-Oni, but his father called him Ben-Yamin. Rahil died, and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Yaqub sent a pillar and Yaqub set a pillar over her tomb. It is the pillar of Rahil's tomb which is there to, to this day. Israel journeyed on and pitched his tent beyond the tower of Eder. While Israel lived in that land, Rauben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. Now the sons of Yaqub were twelve, the son of Leah, Rauben. Jacob's firstborn, Shmaun, Lawi, Yutha, Ishakar, and Zebulun, the sons of Rahil, Yusuf, and Benjamin, the sons of Bilha, Rahil's servants, Dan, Naphtali, the sons of Zilpha, Leah's servants, Gad, and Ashir. These were the sons of Yaakov who, went, who were born to him in Fadan Aram. Yaakov came to his father, Ishaq at Memrah or Kiryat Arba'ah, that is Hebron, where, where Ibrahim and, Yah and Ishaq had sojourned. Now the days of Ishaq were 180 years, and Ishaq breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons, Esau and Yaakov, were his own. And, and Yaakov buried him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. The grass withers <laughs> and the flowers fade. But the word of our God stands forever. I will be using English. So thank you. That was a beautiful reading, Paul, but I, can, I could not do that. And good thing I didn't have you read chapter 36. So, all right, let's pray together. Father in heaven, you are 
You are God. You are Yahweh. Uh, you are the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you are, our, you are our God as well. This is, uh, we're not learning about a different God here in the Old Testament. Um, and so, God, I pray that you would open our eyes um, to see wonderful and glorious things. Uh, open our hearts to receive those wonderful and glorious things. Um, and that you would change us. Uh, in radical ways, that we would be uh, moved by uh, what you have to show us from your holy word this morning. And we pray all of this in the name of Christ. Amen. So a few Sundays ago, Hunter uh, walked us through Genesis chapter 34, uh, in a, hard, a hard text, um, but I, th- I think he did a wonderful job with it. Um, but one of the things that stands out in that chapter is the apparent absence of God. God's name isn't mentioned, Um, he's not really referred to at all um, by any of the characters in the story. And while God is seemingly absent in chapter 34, chapter 35 reveals that he is very much present in the life of Jacob and his family. In chapter 35, God is everywhere. So the name God uh, officially appears 11 times in chapter 35. And then it's present 11 more times in names like Israel, Bethel, and El Bethel, which means God, the house of God. And so this is true because Jacob is still the son of promise, which means God is not finished with Jacob yet. And that whole idea this week reminded me of Paul's reminder to the Philippian church in Philippians chapter 1, if you remember what Paul says to them, and he says, he says, and I am sure of this. And then I, 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 my guess to, to why Paul is so sure of everything, of what he's about to say, um, is because of stories like Jacob that Paul knew really well. He knew his Old Testament really, really well. And I think he can say this because of a story like Jacob. He says, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. God doesn't start something he will not finish. So I was talking to a friend this week about parenting, and I told him in parenting that you have to play the long game um, because your goal in parenting is not just survival so that you get all your kids out of the house and then you can stop being a parent and all your time and money is given back to you because they're all gone. Um, but I hate to disappoint you, uh, especially some of you younger parents that are just you know, fresh starting out the past couple of weeks, that your job as a parent is never finished. And also, your role as a parent, you never, you never cease from being dad or mom. It doesn't stop because your children may take a different path than you wanted them to, or they go off the tracks that you've taught them all of their life. As a parent, you remain faithful to them even when they've lost their faith. And I say all of that to point out that this is what God does with you. He doesn't start something in your life, and when you diverge from his call, or you indulge in that sin, or even when you get older, he doesn't pull away, just as you would not do that with your children. And so Jacob is a perfect example of this. I mean, we know the story of Jacob uh, up to this point. We know that his that he had a, a pretty tragic life. It was, it was severely, he had severe lows and really extreme highs, but he lived in the lows most of the time. And the events, the tragic events of chapter 34 um, kind of speak that to us. But it should come as no surprise, given the pattern of God in Jacob's life, to hear God speaking to Jacob again in chapter 35 Because God is a faithful father. And also because his work in Jacob's life isn't complete. And so we see that in three distinct ways in our passage this morning that I think help us to see how the way of the kingdom of God works, which is distinctly different 
from the way of this world. And so those three things are the fruitful work of repentance, the unusual work of death, and the quiet work of grace. So the fruitful work of repentance, the unusual work of death, and the quiet work of grace. So let me just give you a heads up. The first point is going to be extremely long. So I know if that if you're, you're taking notes and you're like, did I miss the second point? Uh, probably not. And I'll be pretty clear about when I transition. But it's going to be a longer point, and the last two will be a little bit shorter. But the longer point will be the first one. So just to give you a heads up about that. So the fruitful work of repentance in verses 1 through 15 So in the amount of time that has passed since Jacob's life-changing encounter with God in chapter 32, if you remember, uh, he wrestled with God. Uh, And then how he ends up at the conclusion of chapter 33. So if you remember that, that is where he uh, erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel, which means God, the God of Israel. And so at that point, Jacob's name had been changed to Israel. So Jacob is declaring, God is my God, but he is also God of his people. And then you have the years that passed since that moment to the moment we're now in, in chapter 35. So the Bible, uh, Bible scholar Alan Ross points out something very important about those years that chapter 34 covered that were filled with lust and deceit and murder and fear and weak men, and Jacob being one of those weak men. But Alan Ross writes this. He says, For some reason, God's people are susceptible to spiritual decline when they are satisfied or fulfilled in their spiritual quest. When the goal is achieved, perhaps a letdown occurs from the struggle, then a complacency sets in, and vows and commitments are forgotten. During such a relaxation, it is relatively easy to drift from an earlier zealous commitment to God, and this incipient decay soon shows up in disobedience. So in Genesis 35, this seems to be the very problem that the author is addressing here. Genesis 35 is a story of correction, but it's also a story that is saturated with the surprising work of God's grace. And so there's a, there's a few ways this is played out, especially uh, coming out of the events of chapter 34. You wouldn't expect Jacob to be very responsive to the things of God. We would say by the end of chapter 34 that Jacob's heart was in decline, that Jacob was moving away from the God of Israel. And you would be right in a lot of ways. But then you have this this whole idea of Jacob being older, his age. Jacob now, we can say, is in the sunset years of life. Or if we want to stick with our master's theme from last week, he's on the back nine of life. However you want to say it, Jacob at this point is now an old man. Uh, By the end of chapter 35, he is 120 years old. And he dies at 147. So he has about 20 to 30 years of life on this earth left. And so from a spiritual point of view, from this moment on... These were the best years of Jacob's life, his older years. Now, I know that we have a relatively young church. I think the average age of our church is like 26 or 27 or something like that. Um, So we don't often think about this. We don't often uh, talk about growing old. But I can tell you, uh, as you grow old you become more acutely aware of your impending end. So I know for me, when I turned 40, I became much more aware of my own death. And I know that sounds morbid, but I did. It's just just a matter of fact. Because if the scriptures talk about if, if God gives me 80 years, that's, 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 that's doing really, really well. So if God gives me 80 years, and my dad currently is uh, 83 years old, and he's still living, so if he gives me even that amount of time, I am halfway done with my life. Halfway done. That, that puts things into really stark perspective. 
And I think for many, this is why they give up when they hit midlife. That's why uh, most men, and because it is most men who struggle during midlife, why we have these midlife crises, uh, leave their wives and they leave their families in their 40s because they want to make sure they haven't missed out on anything. And so they get the new car or they get the new wife or even sometimes they get the new kids altogether. So just so you know, so there's no worries, I am, I'm living my midlife crisis right now by starting a new church. That's what I decided to do and then having a baby in my 40s. So that's about all I can handle right now. So, and I don't have any money to buy expensive things, so that's, that's what it is. But, but let me encourage those of you who are in your later years. So I would say later years being 40 and up. Some of you might disagree with that, but I think 40 and up is a good measure. Um, let me just encourage you with this. You haven't missed out on anything. There's no need for a midlife crisis. Because this is where God has you at this particular moment in your life, and it is glorious because God has you there. It, it may not seem that way to you now, but it is. And, and he can, and he promises to do so. Uh, if you feel like this is you, uh, he can restore the years the locusts have eaten. He can, and I mean, what I mean by that is he can, he can and still will use you even in your older years. So I'm, I'm particularly encouraged when older folks join us here at CTK, when they lock in, they join the church amongst a lot of um, you know, 20-somethings just starting out in adulthood and trying to get a grasp on, on what adulting is all about. And then you have these more mature believers who come in and just kind of look around and go, what is happening right now? And that's life in your 20s. Um, and so I'm always encouraged when, when older folks join our church because it says two things to me. One, it says that they still believe they have something to offer and also something to learn from the clueless 20-somethings. That we don't have it all together, that we don't have everything figured out in life. And so for those who are in their younger years, so I would say 39 and below, let me just remind you that there is no such thing as FOMO. None at all. You are not missing out on anything when you are pursuing the things of the Lord. Uh, he provides all that you need, including the experiences you need, the expertise that you might be looking for, the family that you might be longing for, um, God will provide all of that, whether you get married or not. Or even if you, if you uh, get married and you're not able to have kids, God will provide a family, the family of God for you. So I spent a lot of, times in my, a lot of time in my 20s and 30s trying to find out where God wanted me because I was afraid I was going to miss out on something. And, it, and I'm just telling you, it caused a lot of unnecessary pain and hurt for me and my family, a lot. And that was on me. But when you recognize God's hand upon your life, that, that he is near, that he is with you, changes how you approach the years given to you. And I think this is something we see in the latter years of Jacob's life here in the story. When he was a young man, it was just kind of like, I'm just going to do my thing. I'm going to find the, the pretty wife. I'm going I'm to make a lot of money. I'm going to pursue this career. I'm going to do it in whatever way that I can. I'm going to take advantage of my father. I'm going to take advantage of my uncle. You know, I'm going to do all of these things. And now in his latter years, his heart has changed. And all of this begins with repentance. Look at verses 1 and 2. God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and, all, and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves and change your garments." So one of the first acts that Jacob performs in obedience to God is to repent of his sins, to repent of his past actions or, his, or lack thereof of action and his idolatry. 
He has obviously led his family to the worship of idols, and um, some, of, some biblical scholars believe these, are, these probably are those household gods that his wife Rachel stole from her father Laban. But also, this also probably includes even more gods that they have added to the mix. So whatever they were, the one true God of Israel was not the only God Jacob and his family had allegiance toward. So when God calls Jacob to worship, he says, Go up to Bethel, which means place of worship. Make an altar there. So what God is saying to him is, Make a place of worship in the place of worship to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So what is God doing here? Well, he's reminding Jacob of his first love. By sending him back, uh, almost imaginatively, in his mind, 100 years prior to the moment that God appeared to him in his dream And Jacob made a vow with God in chapter 28. If you remember that, he says these words. And he was afraid and said, this is after he has this dream, this wild dream. And he was afraid and said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning, Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the name of that place Bethel. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. So this is about, Hunter preached on this text as well, and he brought out that this was, this was more of a, almost like a legal transaction rather than a covenant, but God uh, still makes good on this contract that Jacob makes with him. And he does this in chapter 35, when he says, get up and go to Bethel. Get up and go to this place that you have named a place of worship. And Jacob does exactly that, but he does so much more. Look at verse 2. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you, and purify yourselves, and change your garments. So Jacob is saying, Put away these idols that I've led you to worship, uh, purify yourself through this ritual purification process, and even change your clothes. Change your, change your whole demeanor so that it marks that we are different, that we are God's holy people. Now, if you're reading what God said for Jacob to do, all he said was get up and go to Bethel. He does not tell Jacob to do any of these things. He doesn't say, uh, put your foreign gods away, God's away. He doesn't say, purify yourselves. And he doesn't say, change your garments. But Jacob heard in God's call that that is what he had to do. So Jacob, on his own initiative, leads his family in repentance and leads them in what it takes to begin to turn their hearts back to the God of Israel. So in order to do this, they had to first put away the foreign gods that had begun to intrude upon their worship. So the phrase put away there that it probably says in, in, your, in your copy of, of Scripture uh, means in Hebrew simply to turn aside, to depart, to avoid, to be removed, and to come to an end. So Jacob wisely brings the worship of idols to an end in his family. Because he understands that in order to grow in your relationship with God, you cannot have any other gods before him. Now in this culture that we're reading about now in Genesis 35 and 36, um, gods were, were actually carved or molded images that people worship. And this took place all the way into the early church um, as well, where, where there was businesses built around constructing these physical images for people to worship. So you could think about that today, um, about like a, a Buddha statue, 
or, um, or the gods of Hinduism that you've see, seen pictures of, or even the worship of icons in the Orthodox and Roman Catholic Church as well. But for most of us who have grown up in the West or been here long enough to know, um, recognize that idolatry and idols look differently here, don't they? Our idols take on the shape of something we use to get ourselves and our families from point A to point B. Our idols take on the shape of the place that we sleep at night or the place that we store our resources and can open an app on our phone to make sure that uh, the God of finance is providing for us so that we're safe and, and have everything that we need. Or maybe it's, it takes on the shape of your spouse or the desire to have a spouse or your children, or your desire to have children. Or maybe it just takes the shape of your time and how you spend your money. Maybe it's in the shape of certain emotions. Our emotions can become idols too, can't they? That that you run to instead of God. Sometimes it feels better for me to run to control rather than to run to the God who has everything under his control. It feels better for me to be anxious because it's something tangible that I can feel and experience and it makes me feel like something is happening. It feels better for me to have fear instead of running to the God where there is no fear. So Jacob is simply modeling for us what true repentance looks like. To not repent of your sins and to not put away your idols is to cut yourself off from the worship of God. Because it's not until you repent of your sins that you can go up to Bethel. It's not until you repent of your sins that you can go up to the place of worship. Listen to how Jacob leads his family in this in verses 2 and 3. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods that are among you and purify yourselves and change your garments. Then, then let us arise and go up to Bethel so that I may make there an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. And then you have the response in verse 4. No complaining and arguing here. So they gave to Jacob all the foreign gods that they they had and the rings that were in their ears. And Jacob hid them or he buried them under the terebinth tree that was near Shechem. So let me just appeal to the men in the room right now. Particularly if you have families, but also thinking future. If you don't have a family yet, you might have a family in the future. But let me appeal to you in this way. This is how you lead your families in worship. Which means you do everything that you can do as a man to fight back the idols of this world so that your family is able to go up and worship. This is your responsibility. Now, some of you have failed in this endeavor. You have allowed your responsibility as a husband and as a father and even furthermore as a friend and as a brother in Christ to fall by the wayside because you have failed to lead well. And part of leading well begins with your own repentance for not leading well. So let me just ask you two questions. Men in particular. In what ways do you need to repent today to your wife and to your children for not leading well? And then, what idols do you need to lead your family to bury? Maybe it's some of those idols I described earlier. Maybe it's your chase of a dream or your pursuit of whatever it might be that is leading you away and not towards worship of God. 
God calls you to do, do this just as he called Jacob. And let me just say, if, to use Jacob just as an example, if Jacob can do it, who allowed his daughter to be raped, who just allowed him, himself to be just run over by every person in the world, if Jacob can do this, if Jacob can get to a place like this, we can as well. God can do that work in you. And he will do that work in you. And then immediately in verses 5 through 15, we see the fruit of this repentance. In verse 5, as they journey to Bethel, it says, A terror from God falls upon all the cities around them so that they do not harm Jacob and his family as they make their way up to worship. So God prepares the way for them. He keeps his, their enemies at bay. He does not let them be touched by them. So this is in contrast to the terror that Jacob felt in chapter 34 of what the cities around him. He, he was terrified of the Canaanites, of what they might do to him. And in his terror and in his fear, that controls his life. That controls what he does um, at the expense of his poor daughter. And now the Canaanites are struck with terror. So God is faithful. He, remember, he is faithful. In Genesis chapter 28, he says that he will keep J Jacob safe uh, wherever he goes. And that's exactly what he's doing here. And then you have in verses 9 through 12, God appears to Jacob again and blesses him and reminds him of the name that he has given to him. If you remember back in chapter 32, when Jacob wrestles with God, God changes his name to Israel. But throughout chapter 34, he is still called Jacob. So this reaffirmation of Jacob's uh, name change to Israel marks a, a, what we could call a spiritual renewal in Jacob's life after the disaster of Shechem with Jacob's daughter, Dinah. And then God further secures this renewal by reaffirming the covenant promises to Jacob in verses 11 through 12. And this isn't just God being repetitive or, or the author, um, Moses, trying to just uh, create fillers within his book so that it's a little longer so that it gets published. This isn't what he's doing. This is just a constant reminder that God's promises to his people never change because the circumstances of his people change. God's promises are sure and steadfast. So God says again to Jacob, taking him all the way back to Genesis 2 even, and God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. So God, in real time, in Jacob's life, is restoring the years that the locusts have eaten. He's saying to Jacob, your best years are ahead of you. I am still going to finish the, this good work in your life. I am still going to fulfill these promises in your life. Nations and kings shall rise from you, is what God says. And this is what God does. No matter how old you are or how far you've fallen, God is not finished with you yet. He shows himself faithful to Jacob again and again and again, and he can and will do the exact same thing for you. So that's the first point. The next two points will be shorter, but the second way that we see uh, the way God's kingdom works is, is in the unusual work of death. So I titled this point, The Unusual Work of Death, because it is unusual what death, which is something we don't like to talk about in our, in, in, in our American culture, but it is unusual what death does to us. Even speaking about it in the biblical sense strikes us as unusual, if you think about it. C.S. Lewis sums it up in this way. He says, human death is the result of sin and the triumph of Satan, Okay? But it, death, is also the means of redemption from sin, God's medicine for man, 
and his weapon against Satan. So we have two things going on. It is, it is an unusual work, death. For as much as we avoid it, death does make a significant impact on us and the world around us even. It, it shakes things up. It rattles us and it rattles those around us. And another uh, just example from C.S. Lewis's life. When C.S. Lewis uh, lost one of his friends, uh, very close friends, who was a member of the Inklings, which was kind of his writing, this, this writing club that included himself and J.R. Tolkien and Dorothy Sayers and all these other uh, wonderful writers that they would meet in this pub in England and talk about the books that they were writing and things like that. But, uh, but one of their friends died, passed away. And C.S. Lewis said that when he lost his friend, when he lost this friend, He not only lost that man, but also lost the pieces of his other friends that this man who passed brought out in them. He writes about this in his book, The Four Loves. He says this, In each of my friends there is something that only, uh, that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never see Ronald, which is Tolkien, uh, Tolkien's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having having, having more of Ronald, having him to myself, now that Charles is away, I now have less of Ronald. And this is what we see with the deaths that occur in chapter 35. Death ripples through and tends to have more of an effect than we think to everything that is in our sphere, both for uh, the bad, but also for the good as well. So there are three deaths in chapter 35, and all three, we have to imagine, uh, hit Jacob pretty hard. But they also tell us something important about what God is doing in this part of the story. So the first death that we see is the death of Deborah in verse 8. So Rebecca is Jacob's mom, just in case you forgot. Rebecca has kind of fallen out of the story pretty hard. But just in case you forgot, that is, that is Jacob's mother, Rebecca. And Deborah was Rebecca's nurse. So when, um, when they came to, uh, to bring Rebecca um, to become a, a wife, uh, they also sent away, they sent Rebecca away, but they also sent with her this nurse. So in Genesis chapter 24, when this occurs, um, the nurse, her name is not mentioned. There's no mention of Deborah. But we know this to be this same person here that has passed away. Now, some say the reason that Deborah is mentioned here instead of Jacob's own mom, is that it's meant to be a slight to Rebecca. Because Rebecca was just such a, from what we can tell in the story, was such a horrible person and led her son to do uh, evil things. And for that matter, never called her son back home. But Deborah is mentioned here because he, she was more of a mother to Jacob than his own mother was. Deborah apparently stayed with Jacob even when he was sent to live with his uncle Laban. Rebecca, on the other hand, like I said, never called for her son to come back home, but Deborah was there with him. So the fact that a tree was named for this woman and recorded in tradition shows that this woman's death was a significant loss to Jacob and to his family. So much so that they named this tree in her honor. It was named the Tree of Weeping. Because I'm sure they wept over this woman, leaving them. But her death also tells us part of the story. And that is that the era of the patriarchal period was ending. As Jacob was returning to Bethel. And Deborah's death sort of marks that for us. So it's moving the story along. So that's the first death is Deborah. The second death that occurs comes in verse 16 and is perhaps the greatest sorrow of Jacob's life because it's the death of his favorite wife, Rachel. 
Now, you remember the Jacob and Rachel love story um, from the moment that Jacob set eyes on her across the way. Uh, he was in love. He was enthralled by this woman to the day that, he, that she died. He worked for her for 14 years for no pay. It was just for her that he worked. And then she has children by him, and then um, in kind of a, a, a turn of irony here, she dies in childbirth. The one thing that she really wanted to do was to give birth to children, particularly sons, for her husband Jacob, and she dies giving birth to her son Benjamin. Now Benjamin... Benjamin's birth, even though uh, uh, um, Rachel names him um, um, something that's not too appealing, which is sorrow, a child in my sorrow, um, but his birth is a sign of hope for the future of Israel because it's uh, the 12 tribes with the birth of Benjamin are completed. And so this is kind of a looking into the future, not only for Jacob, not only for Israel the man, but for Israel the people. These are the 12 tribes of Israel. So in a lot of ways, because of his children, Jacob is a bridge between the past and the future of God's people. And we see that through the death of his wife, Rachel. The third death is the death of Isaac, who dies at 180 years old. And verse 29 simply tells us, and Isaac breathed his last, and he died and was gathered to his people, old and full of days. And his sons Esau and Jacob buried him. I think this is a, a beautiful closing to Isaac's life because to have both of his sons bury him, even though he doesn't necessarily see that at all, but I'm sure they were there in the moments before his death, um, to have both of his sons bury him who were at each other's throats. I mean, one of them wanted to kill the other one. They were in this battle of deceit. They were not getting along. And from all, uh, in, in every way that, Je- uh, that, that, um, that Isaac could see, they were never going to be reconciled. And then, he ha- then he's buried by both of them. This is a testament, not to their brothers getting along, you know, finally, but this is a testament to the reality of God's continual work in this dysfunctional family. That God, again, is not finished with them yet. And we see that even more in the entirety of chapter 36. Because in this listing of the names of Esau's descendants, we get a very real sense of the nature of God's kingdom, which I titled, A Quiet Work of Grace. So chapter 36 is a strange chapter, which is why I didn't have Paul read that for us. It is a, it is a list of names, and um, it's not one that a preacher would want to delve into and preach on its own. Um, I mean, I'd do it if I had to, but it would be, it would be difficult to delve into uh, in that way. And I don't, I'm not sure it would be a sermon you would want to listen to, but just being honest. But there are some important aspects uh, to Esau's history that are important to the story of Jacob that need to be drawn out of this chapter. So Esau, according to chapter 36, is producing. He is producing wealth. He is producing people. He is producing generations of tribal chieftains and kings, and he is growing in his prosperity. It appears from this vantage point that he's doing okay. And even into the future that his people are, his offspring are doing okay. Despite selling off his birthright and not getting the blessing from his family and being deceived by his brother, he is experiencing great blessing. But while he was obviously physically blessed by God, Esau was not a follower of God. He did not prosper spiritually. One commentator says of Esau that his life was a long process of decline. And the nation that he founded, which is uh, called Edom, eventually became a special object of God's judgment. 
So if you've read the, the book of Obadiah, um, Obadiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, describes it in this way. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart has deceived you, and you will live in the clefts of the rock in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, Who will bring me down to the ground? Though, you're so, though you soar aloft like the eagle, though, you, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. So what we can learn from this is, one, is Esau is prospering. So from, from, even from Jacob's vantage point or anybody in that generation, this, good things are happening. Things are on the move. Cities are growing. Uh, things are being built. People are being born. Uh, kings and chieftains and leaders are being raised up within the culture. But in the meantime, during all of this prosperity and growth of Esau, Jacob was essentially still a farmer. Jacob, remember, is the blessed one. He is the one who received the birthright. He is the one who received the blessing from his father. And eventually, as we'll see in the coming chapters, Jacob ultimately has to move to Egypt to survive the drought that is coming. And from what we can tell, all of his wealth is diminished Everything that he's earned, everything that he's cheated his father-in-law out of, everything, everything that he has built up, his, his kingdom, his wealth, his earnings, is gone. And he basically has to start from scratch. And this is the beginnings of God's kingdom. A nothing nation with nothing to their name. But what this shows us is the, the, small, the slow, small, and steady work of God's kingdom compared to the seemingly rapid and immense work of the kingdom of this world. It, it, it's why this is a quiet work of grace. Matthew 13, uh, Jesus um, he has a, a lot of descriptions of the kingdom, but just to pull one out, um, he describes the kingdom in this way. Jesus says, The kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds. If you've ever seen a mustard seed, it is tiny. But when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. And again, this means that being in God's kingdom means that you and I, as members of God's kingdom, as children of God, have to play the long game. You, you are not looking or, or, or supposed to be looking for the immediate satisfaction in the kingdom of this world, but ultimate satisfaction in the kingdom of God, which is Slow and small to start with. I think this is one of the reasons that we, um, especially in our country, put so much hope and trust in politicians who have proven themselves not to be trustworthy, and, and yet we continue every four years to put our hope and our trust and our comfort in them. And I think the reason is, is because the work of the kingdom is so small and slow and oftentimes quiet, is we begin to uh, not have faith in the kingdom of God anymore. And so we want to build up the kingdom of this world so that it gives us something to look at and, and something tangible, even, even when they're terrible people. And we say, oh, so, oh, oh, so-and-so is going to protect us. So-and-so is going to make the right decisions for us. And we can see them and experience them, and we can benefit from them. But that's not always true in the kingdom of God, is it? Sometimes in the kingdom, that means you have to wait. Just as we now wait in this second advent for the return of our king, for the return of Jesus. 
We are trusting that God is doing this quiet work of grace in our lives, just as he was doing it in Jacob's life. Even though it was very hard for Jacob to see until later in his life. And we have this hope because of what we celebrated last week in Easter. This is why Easter is not to be just a one-time event that we celebrate, but that Easter is to be something that we're always living in. I was reminded of this with Paul's, word in Paul's words in Philippians 3 when he says that he wants to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. That wasn't Easter Sunday that Paul says that. That was just a normal day. So we want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection because in Jesus' resurrection... He proves to us that he is faithful to the promises of God. Just as he was faithful to the patriarchs, to Abraham and to Isaac and to Jacob, he is also faithful to us in the exact same way. So we like to talk about these things in a theological matter that, that we are part of the already, not yet kingdom. The already is that Jesus has come, the king has come, and because of that we can trust that the King is coming again. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are so thankful for how you have led us and guide us, guided us this morning uh, according to your good word, according to uh, all of your promises that you give to us in Christ. Um, we know that we can hold on to these promises because the resurrection is true. We know that we can hold on to these promises because we can look back in your word uh, and see you fulfilling these promises to your people, to uh, men like Jacob, who had such a tumultuous life, and you still remain faithful to him. So God, I pray that as, your, as, as we, your people, uh, continue to move uh, through this world, that you would make yourself known to us continually, over and over again, that we would know uh, Christ and the power of his resurrection. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.